Before I get into the message, just want to acknowledge that all of us remember where we were 15 years ago today, uh, September 11th, 2001, and uh, uh, it's just a remembrance for our country, isn't it? And uh, our hearts are with those that lost loved ones and the uh, many who lost their lives to follow. In some ways, I think it fits into the message today as we talk about the king who was tested. Before I get into that, though, last weekend we began this new series on uh, the kingdom of God from the Gospel of Matthew. It was a holiday weekend, and so we, a lot of people weren't here. So I think maybe I'm just going to just review a little bit of the foundation that we laid last week, and then we'll get into uh, our text, just make sure we all kind of understand how we're approaching this. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel means good news. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It's the first of four Gospels, really portraits of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And each one of them has their own emphasis, their own sort of unique qualities. Um, Matthew's focus is on the Jewishness of Jesus and on the fulfillment of Jesus of Old Testament prophecies and scriptures that spoke of the coming of one who would sit on the throne of David forever. So you read through Matthew and often he'll say this is what happened, but this was done to fulfill what was written. And uh, that kind of rhythm of fulfillment, a big part of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is the king of a kingdom, okay? The king of a kingdom. But what kind of kingdom would this be? And obviously, it was not the kind of kingdom that uh, his contemporaries, the Jews, were looking for. They were assuming that when the Messiah came, that he would come in, in, uh, in military power, in political power, that he would overthrow the Romans and establish Israel as a leading nation in the world. And they were looking for that kind of a king. There was a great heightened sense of anticipation that he would, he would come. But here comes Jesus, not as the conquering king, but as the suffering servant. And uh, he doesn't act the way that the Messiah was supposed to act, and he doesn't seem interested in sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. He is entirely different. In fact, he's a king who dies for his people, right? A king of a spiritual kingdom. Bonhoeffer uh, said it this way, a king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. And indeed, that was the sense of it. That's why the disciples, they just couldn't grasp, what are you talking about? Like, dying and all of this. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And Matthew talks about the king, Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven, is typically how he says it. The other writers in the New Testament typically call it the kingdom of God. They're essentially the same. What is the kingdom of God? It is the reign of God through Christ. He rules and reigns in a realm. The kingdom of God, therefore, is the human heart that is in submission to Jesus as its king and Jesus as its savior, okay? Jesus as his king and Jesus as its savior. That faith in him is the expression of the heart in submission to Jesus as king. And so when Jesus came, he inaugurated this new kingdom, his presence 
meant the kingdom had come. And his work in atonement, his work in his death, his resurrection, all are indications of the, of the, uh, the inaugurated reality that there is suddenly now a new kingdom here on earth. And the Bible tells us that someday this kingdom, uh, will, which is presently spiritual and invisible, will be very much physical and visible and will extend into every inch of the cosmos. Jesus will rule and reign everything and everyone. The Bible says that someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And billions will be there and you and I will be there and we will be gladly confessing him as the King of Kings. But there will be billions of others that will be there belligerently but acknowledging, yes, he is King and he is Lord. So, the kingdom of God, largely invisible. Presently, the kingdom is in heaven. We find the kingdom of God in the hearts of people. The church is in the kingdom of God, but the church is not the sum of the kingdom of God. It is more than that. It is everywhere that God's reign extends, okay? Everywhere that God's reign extends. There is another kingdom in this world, and the Bible says it is the kingdom of darkness. It is the kingdom of Satan. And God has allowed Satan a kind of temporary, provisional authority in this world where he really is the king of this world. But it is not to suggest that God is not the God of everything because he certainly is. He has allowed Satan a kind of rule here uh, until Jesus returns. So the effects of the kingdom of Satan are visible. They are hatred and violence and murder and um, flying planes into buildings and killing thousands of people is the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of God is the opposite. It is peace and light and love and reconciliation, restoration. Now, we're going to save Matthew's birth narrative for December and Christmas, okay? So we're going to pick up then now our story in Matthew chapter 4 today in what is typically known as the temptation of Christ. Now before we get into chapter 4, I want you to notice that it comes on the heels of chapter 3. Profound statement number one in this message right there. 4 comes after 3. And in chapter 3, we have this very poignant, beautiful moment, the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and in, as he comes out of the water, the text says that the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, okay? So you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon him, and God the Father thunders from heaven, uh, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's the last verse, the last words of chapter 3. You have this beautiful Trinitarian moment where you have the Father in the thundering and the delight, you have the Spirit in the descending like a dove, and you have the Son there coming out of the water, all members of the Trinity seen in one moment there. And what a wonderful moment even for Jesus to hear the affirmation of his heavenly Father, that he delights in him and that, uh, that, that he affirms that relationship that he has with him as his father and Jesus as his son. A wonderfully beautiful moment. We pick up the story now in chapter four, verse one. 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The same Spirit that descended on him at the baptism now leads him into the wilderness. The NIV translates it the desert. What are we talking about here? If you remember this map from last week, which we used to just describe Galilee, where Jesus lived most of his life there in north, northern Israel, uh, John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan River, which is this squiggly line that you see right here. We don't know where he was doing that. He probably did it in various places. We don't know where he was when Jesus came to him, presumably maybe in the region that Jesus was living, so sort of in this area. He's baptized by John the Baptist, and then the Spirit leads him into the wilderness, this area somewhere in here. And it's called wilderness for a reason. I have been there. It is barren. It is like just, it looks like the moon in some places, just rock and dust and there's no green, there's little water. It's really, truly a wilderness. There's nowhere that you'd want to go and like spend the night. Um, And yet he spends 40 days and 40 nights in this wilderness. And it says here that he was fasting during this time. This alone is a Herculean effort, right? We miss lunch and we think we're suffering. 40 days, 40 nights, no food, little water. The summary in verse 2 He was hungry. I would say so, right? I would say that he was hungry. Now, why would would the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness, and why would he lead him to, to fast? Especially, you know, you think about coming on the heels of this great baptism moment, you know, this kind of like mountaintop moment for Jesus, and then now this, right? It would have been easy for Jesus to maybe think in that baptism moment, man, it's going to be awesome from this point on. Like we do often, like we have a kind of a great moment in life, great maybe spiritual moment in our life, and we sort of assume this is the way it's going to be from now on. And how often, even in our own experience, isn't it after that great moment, then suddenly now there's something that kind of comes, and we we enter a kind of wilderness experience of of our own. And Jesus doing that same, or experiencing that same thing now, is led by the Spirit. It's not like he is out of the will of God. It's the wilderness isn't a, doesn't mean God hates him or anything like that. It just means that God led him into the wilderness for a time of what it says here, um, to be tempted by the devil. The, 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 the word there, the original language of the New Testament is Greek. And so this is an English translation of these Greek words. And this Greek word for this uh, tempting, it, it, the root of it means testing, okay? Testing. A testing that can go negative into temptation, but it could also go positive. The word doesn't necessarily infer one or the other. And isn't that often our challenge itself, right? When we are in a trial, it is easy for that trial to become a temptation for us. Because in a trial, we're weak. It could be a physical trial. You know, you've got something going on in your body, some kind of issue, and then you can give in to discouragement or despondency or, you know, bitterness or whatever it might be. The test becomes the test becomes itself a temptation. Here, Satan wants to turn the testing into a temptation and to catch Jesus at a very weak moment in his life. So he's led there for a reason. 
all purpose by God, all there by God's design and by God's will. And the, this wilderness, though, was not the trial. You might say, wow, that would have been really hard. That was the trial. It wasn't the trial. The 40 days without eating and drinking wasn't the trial. We'd look at that and go, wow, that was an amazing accomplishment, not eating. The trial is who met him in the moment of weakness and what he wanted to do to Jesus. This is why it's known as the temptation of Christ. Again, the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the text says here, okay, the devil. Later, Jesus is going to call him by his name, Satan, but let's just pause for a moment and make sure we know who we're talking about with this guy. Who is the devil? Who is Satan? Satan is a created being. He was one of the angels that God created when God, when God created, okay? In eternity past, there, was no, there weren't angels. It was just God. But at some point in this story, God creates angelic beings, And of all the angels that he created, the most glorious, the most powerful, and the most beautiful was Lucifer, or Satan is another name for him. And uh, Satan was an authority over the angelic uh, beings. And this is important in the story in understanding the kingdom of God, because realize that when God created the world and put Adam and Eve and all the rest, everything was the kingdom of God. Everything was the rule and reign of God. There was no non-kingdom of God. It was all kingdom of God. So you say, well, where did then this alternative kingdom, this other kingdom, start? And the answer is, it started in the heart of Satan. It started with pride in the heart of Satan as he admired his own beauty and aspired to the glory that was uniquely God's that other kingdom began right there in the heart of Satan, and it spread. The Bible says that Satan led other angels in a rebellion against God. So that kingdom then spreads to a portion of the angelic being, who the Bible calls then fallen angels or demons, and then it extends into this created world when Satan leads Adam and Eve into sin. And not only did humanity then join the kingdom of Satan, because Adam and Eve were the representative heads of all of creation, all of creation fell as well. All of creation was broken. Death enters into the world. And now the kingdom of Satan, which started in his heart, extends into a portion of the angelic being and into the entire physical cosmos, is now under the reign of Satan, not under the reign of God. And that is why the Bible gives Satan very exalted titles, like, to give you some examples, he is called the prince of this world, the god of this world, the ruler of this world, the dominion, in other words, the kingdom of Satan, the dominion of darkness, the powers of this dark world. All of these titles that now are true for Satan. He is a king, okay? Satan is a king of a kingdom, and it is the kingdom that you and I live in. That's the kingdom of this world. He is the king, okay? So in other words, who's the, you know, who's the real authority in England, and who's the real king of the United States? 
It is not the president of the United States that is the ruler of the United States. The Bible says the one that is really in charge around here is Satan himself. He's the king of his kingdom, and we live in his kingdom. So the world that Jesus was born into then was not like neutral or a non-kingdom. He was born into a kingdom hostile to him, a kingdom of darkness. That's why the scripture says, we have seen a great light. When Jesus came into this world, after all of these centuries of darkness and the dominion of Satan, all of a sudden, for the very first time ever since Adam and Eve sinned, now there was again the kingdom of God. The king showed up back in the old ruins of the kingdom that he had created, but now had been dominated by, uh, by Satan. And you just see the shards and all of that. I, I watched The Lion King with my daughter. I don't have this in my notes. It just comes to my mind. I watched The Lion King. I don't know if I've ever watched The Lion King, but I have a three-year-old daughter, so now I've watched The Lion King. And, you know, when, when uh, Mufasa dies and Scar takes over, and, you know, the, 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 the Serengeti or whatever it's called, it's just, you know, there's no, there's no foliage anywhere. It's just, like, bleak, and it's ruled by hyenas, you know. But then Simba comes back, and he sees the old kingdom and all of its darkness and all of its despair. That's kind of like this. I don't know. It comes to my mind. Okay? Jesus steps back into the old kingdom, and he sees just the brokenness of what is all around him, and he confronts the hyenas, the demons, regularly in his ministry as he, the authorities of that kingdom are confronted with now the king of kings walking around the place again. It's cool to think about. So the king of God's kingdom is back on earth, and the king of the kingdom of earth confronts him at his most weakest moment. So this is a clash, king versus king. This is kingdom versus kingdom that is going on here. And the stakes are incredibly high because Satan wants to do to Jesus what he did to the angelic horde that followed him and what he did to Adam and Eve. He wants to compromise the king's right to reign in the kingdom of God. And so he meets him in his moment of weakness, and he brings to him three temptations, three tests. You see the first one in verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, that sounds pretty innocent, doesn't it? I mean, this is the way that we live every single day, right? If, if we are hungry, what do we do? We go to the kitchen, we pull open the fridge, we reach in, we get food, and we satisfy that hunger. Nobody looks at that and says, oh, this is terrible what I'm doing right now. No, I'm hungry, and I, and I have a need, and so I'm going to meet the need with the food. Or if, I, if I'm hungry and I need food, I, I go to the grocery store, and I turn dollar bills into loaves of bread, and I satisfy that need. When I do so, I don't think to myself, I am 
disobeying God or I'm, you know, it doesn't feel wrong. It feels right, especially when I'm really hungry. Food becomes a kind of entitlement for us, doesn't it? When we're hungry, like, give me food. I need food right now. My one-year-old daughter, food is an entitlement to her. And when she's hungry, she lets us know that she is entitled to food right now. She's very effective with that. Or maybe to compare it, what's going on here, if I could uh, draw this comparison, to think about um, uh, Costco a moment. Which, by the way, I just have to say that, that going, for me, going to Costco is only slightly different than me coming to this church on a Sunday morning. Because at any given moment, half of our members are shopping at Costco. <laughs> and it's, it's such a wonderful thing to, to go there to pick up one thing and three hours later to be able to walk out of the place. Uh, having run into so many people that I know. And it's fine. If I see you there, it's, it's fine. Just keep it short. Anyway... Um, <laughs> So, but if you, if you remember at Costco, I think this might be true at Sam's Club, but if you remember at Costco, then you know that one of the wonderful benefits of being a member at Costco is that they have amazing free samples out all the time. Lots of them. Like, I think, how do they make money off of this? There's, you know, because everyone's, there's long lines, people waiting for their free f- sample. So much food that if you really wanted to, I would never do this, but if you really wanted to... Two laps is pretty much lunch, right? You could almost go there and view it as a free, I would never do that, but you could view it as a free lunch, couldn't you? It's kind of fun when you go to Costco, all of the food samples. So anyway, uh, a friend of mine, not me, a friend of mine told me that uh, he went one day to Costco. He was hungry and uh, he was thinking, I'm going to do the Costco buffet. Again, not me, just a friend. Uh, I'm going to do the Costco buffet, and um, they didn't have any samples out. What? Right? Like, I am a member here. I have a right to enjoy some food. Do you not know that I'm a member here? How can you not feed me? That doesn't feel right. I'm entitled to this. If you are the Son of God, if you are a member of the Trinity, why don't you just turn this stone right here into bread and meet the need? You're hungry. It's legit. You're entitled to it. We all know you can do it. This is not the issue of whether Jesus can turn the the stone into bread, right? Satan knows he can do it like that. You're entitled to it as a member of the Trinity. How, how can you be hungry? If you're the son of God, how can you not eat? Come on, just take care of that, dude. Now, what is the temptation going on there? Remember, why is he in the wilderness in the first place? The Spirit led him into the wilderness. He is there by the will of God. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom that takes matters into its own hands. It is not a kingdom that operates independently. It is a kingdom that operates in dependence upon God to meet our needs and to trust him even when we're hungry to meet our needs. For Jesus to have said, you know what, you're right, bam, would have 
broken that triune relationship where he other, another place says that his food, his bread, is to do the will of his Father, right? And so Jesus identifies the temptation, and his response is, man does not live by bread alone. There is something more important than food when I am in worship of Almighty God. And I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to trust in my heavenly father rather than taking matters into my own hands. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy 8 here, and he rebuffs Satan's strategy. The kingdom of God, this is not a title and entitlement. The kingdom of God is of humble trust and dependence on God. And he refused to turn the, the, the stones into bread. The king passed the first test, okay? He passed the first test. Two more to go. Notice the second test now in verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Okay, so here now Satan does what apparently Satan can do, and he takes Jesus like that from the wilderness to the highest place in the temple. This would have been in Jerusalem. This was known as Herod's Temple. It was a massive structure, and by that day's standards, a very high structure. It was the center of worship for Judaism. It was the center of Jerusalem, which was the capital city. In other words, there's people everywhere. This is the most public spot in all of Israel is right there at the highest place of the temple. Jesus is standing there. Satan is standing there. And Satan uh, says to him, hey, why don't you just uh, sort of speed things along if you're the son of God? And we know that you're the son of God. So since you're the son of God, and, and you've come here for people to know who you are, for you to be identified as the king. Why don't you just sort of, you know, uh, show everybody who you are? Now, how would he have done that? And he quotes, by the way, from the Psalms here, and he quotes it accurately. It's not like he misconstrues it. It's an accurate quotation of the Psalm. The issue is the application, because what Satan is suggesting is that Jesus, from that top spot in the, in the temple, just does this, you know, and he walk, just take a big step and begin hurtling down from that high spot in the temple. What would happen? You know, when somebody's jumping off a bridge or something like that, all of a sudden everyone's, oh, right? He's falling, he's falling. Everybody's attention would be on him. And as he's falling, in fulfillment of the psalm, what would happen? Angels would visibly appear, catch him, set him down very gently right there in the middle of everybody, and then they would disappear, and everyone would just look at him and be like, did you just see that? Let's make him king right now, right? In other words, it was glory without suffering. There's no cross in that. You don't, you don't have to do all that, you know, uh, 
trial and the beating. You don't have to hang with these disciples all this time. You don't have to sort of be, you know, subtly, quietly letting yourself, people know who you are. Just go public with it. I mean, just get it done with already. Just step off the pinnacle. They make you king. No cross, no suffering. Come on, man. You know God's going to take care of you. Why not fast track this kingdom of God thing? And Jesus' response in verse 7 is, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. A stunt to force the hand of God to make everybody know who Jesus was would not be humble dependence, it would be arrogance, right? It's kind of like what Moses did when he took matters in his own hands, I'm going to deliver Israel and he kills the Egyptian, not God's will, not God's plan. This is a little bit what Peter did. If you remember, Jesus was telling them, the Son of Man will will be crucified, right? And three days later, he will rise again. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, Jesus, I mean, come on, enough of this talk like that. And you remember what his response was in that moment? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus identified who was really behind that temptation to subvert the will of God, which was the cross and dying for the sins of the world. So we find here that Satan's temptation, his goal in the temptation, isn't merely a wrong end for us, a wrong goal, but a good goal by a wrong path, a path out of the will of God, a path of sort of like the easy, quick thing. And so Jesus doesn't give in to it, and he refuses to put his heavenly Father to the test. Test number two, Jesus passed the test. He passed the test. Which leads us to test number three. Look at verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So from the high point of the temple, they go to the high point of the world, a high mountain, it says. And with what he shows him here, this is not simply uh, a place where you can see all the kingdoms. There's nowhere in the world you can see all the kingdoms of the world. This is a supernatural vision that Satan places before Jesus. And he shows him all of the wealth and all of the glory and all of the honor of all of the kingdoms of of the world. What does Satan essentially dangle before Jesus? He dangles before him all authority. Now that sounds like something Jesus is going to say later in Matthew at the end, isn't it? Okay? Which is given to him, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, therefore go and make disciples. Okay? That's the end of Matthew. Satan now before the cross, before the suffering, before the death offers him the same thing. Without a cross. Without suffering. And he dangles before him his most prized possession. The thing that Satan is most proud of is the fact that he is the ruler, he is the authority of this world. And he dangles before him all of the authority of the entire cosmos. He dangles before him the empires and the kingdoms of this world. Jesus saw the Roman Empire, Jesus saw the Greek Empire, Jesus saw the Assyrian Empire. 
Jesus saw the glory of, of the Chinese Empire and the emperors of China. He saw the glory of, of uh, the Spanish Empire and the Spaniards and all that they would do. He saw the glory of uh, Louis XIV and Napoleon. He saw the glory of the British Empire in all of its splendor at its highest place. I believe Jesus saw the glory of the United States in that moment. All of it was just dangled before Jesus. He says, I'll give this to you. And, and Jesus doesn't say, that's not yours to give, come on. It was his to give. But Jesus identifies what is really going on here. Because Satan says, I'll give it all, all, all to you. If you just do one little thing for just a millisecond, just one millisecond, will you worship me? Will you become a Satanist? Just, just, it, it just once. That's all it takes. Just one time. And then you don't have to die on the cross. And then you don't have to go through all of that suffering. And you don't have to bear the sins of the guilt of the, of the world. You don't have to do any of that. You get everything you want without a cross. And we see in this the way that Satan operates. He's always trading up. Okay? He's always trading up. You ever play that party game? I was a youth pastor for five years, and we used to sometimes do this game. We you know, give, divide all the kids up into groups of six people, and we give them a dollar. We say, you got one hour, and whoever comes back with the best thing, the most valuable thing, you win the prize. All right, so the kids all go out, and you know, they go to the mall, and they're like, hey, I'll give you a dollar for your hair clip, and they go, okay, and the hair clip gets a tie, and the tie gets a this, and a this, and a that, and it's amazing what people come back with. Have you ever done that party game? Do you guys go to parties ever? Like, <laughs> you're all looking at me like, what's a party? It's been so long I can't remember. But, uh, I mean, you know, they come back with like an air conditioning unit or something. You're like, how did you do that? Well, we traded up, okay? We had something of lesser value, but we were able to trade for something of, of greater value. And that's the way that Satan always operates. He goes to Adam and he says, hey, you know what? You want to be like God? Just eat the fruit, okay? Just, it's just a little give, and he gives them some fruit, and he takes away paradise and eternal life. Massive trade up for Satan. And here he is seriously trying to trade up. He is wanting to exchange the glory of the kingdoms of the world it's, uh, for Jesus. This is, this is uh, giving the pawn to get the queen, or in this case, the king. Always trading up. And Jesus, weakened by 40 days of fasting, living on wilderness, weakened by two temptations already that no doubt were experientially difficult, sees through the charade, and he identifies what is really at stake, and here again is the verse, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And that third time, again, a third time quoting scripture, repeated, it is written, it is written, it is written, a little tip on how to deal with temptation. He responds again with scripture, and he says, yeah, that's a shortcut, and that would be convenient, but I'm not going to trade down. I am not going to give up my relationship with my heavenly Father, 
for any kingdom you could offer to me. Why? Because he alone is worthy of worship, and him alone shall you serve. And you see the authority that he exerts even in this moment. He says, Satan, be gone. Scat. You ever do that to a dog? Get out of here. That's kind of what he does here. Satan, get out of here, you snake. Then the devil left him, it says, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Probably brought him food and something to drink and encouraged him. He passed test number one. He passed test number two. He passed test number three. He passed the test. So what does this mean, church? How should we think about this? And I could talk about how to overcome temptation because it's a wonderful guide that we have Jesus providing for us here, how we overcome those moments when we're feeling that we're in temptation. But this is a series on the kingdom of God, and I want to really look at this text through that lens. In what way? Here's the first thing. We find here in Jesus and in his example that the kingdom of God is worth more than all the kingdoms of men. Having the kingdom of God is more valuable than having all the wealth and all the honor and all the glory of all the kingdoms of the world. We're going to see that in the parables when Jesus is going to compare the kingdom of heaven to a pearl of great price or a field that has a treasure in it that you sell everything that you own in order to buy that field. The kingdom of God is valuable. Really, how valuable is it? Like hundred bucks, thousand bucks, billion bucks, trillion bucks? You can't put a dollar amount on it. You can't put a glory amount on it. There's no kingdom that has ever been in this world or the, 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 the accumulation of all of them that equals the privilege of having and being a part of the eternal kingdom of God. And Satan offers all of these things in exchange. No cross. Authority, no suffering. The whole world without any pain. We do this all the time, don't we? We're like putty in Satan's hand. He comes to us, he says, hey... And he offers us some temptation that's out of the will of God. And we're like, okay, you know, we'll give up our reputation. We'll give up our sense of integrity. We'll give up a right relationship with God. We'll give up all of that. Okay, I'll do this temptation. We're like putty in his hands. We pick so easily sin. And sin is always kind of making that trade. We always trade down. Satan trades up. We trade down all the time. But in Jesus' estimation, even with it requiring his death, the kingdom of God is worth it. The kingdom of God is worth it. The delayed gratification was worth it. All of it was worth it. So when Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God, he is not merely saying words. We see him showing in his own example, modeling for us, that the most wonderful and valuable thing that you can have is the kingdom of God and to be a citizen of the kingdom of God and to be a part of it. And all the wealth and all the money and all the things in this world cannot compare to it. So to ask the question then, well, what kingdom am I really valuing? What kingdom am I actually seeking? What kingdom, Satan or God's, am I kind of living by the values of, loving, treasuring, thinking is all of that? Would you trade the kingdom of God for anything? I think of the old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus 
than anything the world affords today. That's the truth of it. It is more desirable and more valuable than any kingdom in this world. And the second thing is just an opportunity to admire the king of the kingdom. Because here we have the the reality that Jesus in his greatest moment of weakness is stronger than Satan at his best, okay? Than Satan at his best. Why do I say that? Because we, we, we see in here Jesus, 40 days, no food, 40 days, no little water, 40 days, no bed, no t- terrible sleep. He's just, he is totally on the edge. He's at the verge of what the human body can physically endure. There he is, right? He's at his weakest moment. Satan, on the other hand, t- on the other hand is at his best moment. Why do I say that? Because ever since Genesis 3, Satan has been living for this moment. Right? God said to Satan, one's coming that's going to crush your head. And Satan's like, oh, what's the plan? What's going on? I don't know. What is, what is he up to? But then he sees is the way that God is, begins now his, his restoration. And, and he sees Israel. And he hears those prophecies about one that's coming, a suffering servant. And he's like, I am, I am watching for that. Who is that talking about? And if the Magi could figure it out from the stars in Scripture, think of what Satan understood about what God's plan actually was, and I guarantee you, Jesus was there on that Bethlehem hillside when the angel said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. Satan was there. Satan was there in that, in that manger scene, and he saw that little, that little baby wiggling and all of that, and he said, I am gunning for you. And for Jesus' whole life, Satan was there looking for the moment. Where can I get him? Where can I maybe get him in a moment of weakness? And he sees Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. He's like, this guy is on the edge of death. If I'm ever going to get him, I'm going to get him now. And he comes in all of his strength and all of his subtle temptation. And he gives to Jesus his very best temptation his very best strategy, Adam was putty in his hands, and David with Bathsheba was putty in his hands, and Moses was putty in his hands, and every person that has ever lived has been putty in his hands. But here now Jesus, in his moment of weakness, takes the fury of Satan, and he wins. He passes the test. Our king, at his weakest, is stronger than Satan at his best. He won where others failed. He is a king that is worthy of our allegiance. He is the king of the kingdom of God, and he rules in a kingdom that is more valuable and more wonderful and more eternal than any kingdom of this world. And it just leads to the question, friend, which kingdom are you in? Who is your king? Who has your allegiance? Whose values are you treasuring? Which kingdom are you seeking? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Amen. Amen.